I forgot my Bible at um, work on Friday, so I'm carrying one of these. But as I grabbed one of these at my house the other day, I realized that the, the Bibles we usually keep in the back have these, they have print in them that's so small that I'm pretty sure you have to like have the freshest eyes in the world to read them. And I can barely read them with my glasses. And so I brought these in and they're just New Testaments, but they have, you know, basically what we're studying in Acts in them. And the print is like much bigger. So if you don't have a Bible and you want to take one home or if you just want to use one during services, um, they're back there. For, you can take them, you can give them away, whatever you want to do. But that being said, turn to Acts chapter 13. And as you get there, you'll uh, kind of see the passage we're going to look at today. And I want to remind you where we're at in the scripture because last week we actually took what I would call kind of a parenthetical statement. It was a vacation from the main uh, outline of the book of Acts. Basically, what we had a couple of weeks ago is found at the end of chapter 11 in verse 29 of Acts, where it says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, they determined to send relief to the brethren that were dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So, Basically, what we had was the church at Antioch had become the central part through which Christianity is now going to be, it's kind of the headquarters of the region. And because of that, you had these men and women that went to Antioch, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike, and they'd shared their faith with the Jews and the Gentiles that were there in Antioch. And as they did, this church sprung up out of seemingly nowhere in a very pagan culture, a city of about 500,000 people. Half a million people that did not know Jesus, uh, the people that were spread because of persecution and because of just God moving them to different places, gave them uh, the witness, the testimony of Jesus Christ to share as they arrived there in Antioch. So when they got there and they started sharing their faith, people getting, were getting saved in the droves. So anytime there's a group of people that God is raising up as new believers, God also raises up teachers and pastors to be able to build up those groups of believers. And this, this is what was happening. You had Saul and Barnabas through different circumstances ended, ended up in Antioch and they used the gifts that God had given them, the gift of teaching and the gift of encouragement to build up those that were there in that church. And so as that church grew and it become, became healthy and mature, one of the outcroppings of that was their maturity led to them wanting to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then also to love their neighbor as themselves. And this is a really good standard because I don't know about you guys, but I really know how much I love myself. And so when God calls us, he also gives us the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so one of the ways that they did that was a prophet by the name of Agabus had arrived there in Antioch and had explained to them that God had showed him that there was going to be a famine in the land. And so they saw this need. They had resources. And so to love their neighbor as their self, they gathered up a collection, a love offering where they took their finances, each person according to the, thing, the amount of money that they were able to give, gave, not because anybody begged them, but willingly, so that when they gathered that money together, they sent it back to Judea, specifically to Jerusalem, to be a blessing to those that were getting ready to go through the famine. So they heard a word from God, they acted on it, and they became a blessing to Jerusalem. 
So Paul and Barnabas have been taking this love offering down to that region. And in the meanwhile, before they come back, it seems that Herod, we studied in Acts chapter 12 last week, has decided that since there's such a volatile situation between the Jews and the Christians, he's going to use this volatile situation to kind of gain favor with one of the largest groups in his region, and that is the Jews. And he knew that the best way to get favor with them was to reach out his hand and try to kind of discourage the Christians. And one of the ways he did that was he found a man by the name of James, who is the brother of John, and he had him put to death, executed. And he didn't do it to persecute him. He did it in order, basically, to get favor with the Jews. He, he wanted to get their political favor. He wanted them to like him. He wanted popularity. He wanted people to praise him. And so the best way he knew to do that was to kill Christians. And what he found out is he got more favor than he originally thought he would. And so as a result of that, he goes, you know what, this, is, this feels pretty good. I like when people like me. So I'm going to do it again. And so he grabbed a man by the name of Peter. We all know him as the Apostle Peter. And he put him in prison, but it was the time of Passover. So he couldn't just execute him there on the spot. He had to wait because he still wanted the Jews to like him. And on Passover, they wouldn't put anybody to death. And so while he was in prison, and while all this is going on, uh, we saw the end of the result of last week is that basically what had happened is Peter was put in prison. The church prayed for him because they knew his death was imminent. That it was a very real threat. They already saw James put to death. And because of that, because of the prayers and because of God's will being that he would be set free, Peter was set free miraculously, not from one guard, not from two guards, but from four sets of four guards, two of which of those men were chained directly to Peter. And the angel of the Lord released him by taking those shackles and just breaking them free. Then Herod, a little discouraged because he wasn't able to get more favor with the people by killing Peter, he didn't have a problem with that. He'd just go to another region where there was a volatile situation. And in that region, the people of Tyre and Sidon were used to getting some supplies and some exports, the food that they would need because the famine's on. They were used to getting some of their supplies from the kingdom of Herod. And so Herod, knowing this, knowing they had a need, he went down there and used that need to get them to tell him how great he was. You know, because if we want something from someone, oftentimes what we do is we flatter them with words. And, and that's all Herod wanted. He didn't need anything. He wanted people to like him. And so he used this to his advantage. They would come and say, hey, you're great. We love you. And he would say, yes, I am. Here's your supplies. And so when he went down there to do that, they started actually praising him, knowing what he was looking for. It was that obvious. You know, they were like, we really don't like him, but we'll tell him how great he is. And they start telling him, hey, uh, and he gave a speech and they told him, hey, your words that you just spoke there, they're not just the words of a mere man, but they were the words of a God. And they kept shouting this from the crowd. And at that moment, God looking at that man, said, you're not going to get my glory. Because the nation of Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the other nations that were around them. They were supposed to see the relationship that they had with their God and how God blessed them and, and want that relationship as well. But instead what they got was an ungodly king that wanted praise for himself, was going to take the, the glory of God because all the 
the, the things that they had in the nation of Israel were not because of Herod, but they were because of God's blessing on them. And so, long story short, as a result of him accepting the praises of people, God inflicted him with a physical ailment that essentially were worms that ate him from the inside out. We don't know if it was a tapeworm or a hookworm, or, but whatever it was, it took about five days, and at the end of it, he died after great affliction. And so what was going on spiritually inside of Herod, the corruption, the, uh, the nastiness, it, it showed itself on the outside because God gave him a physical ailment that pointed to the spiritual ailment that he had. And so the people would look at him and see that, that something was definitely wrong there. But no man or woman who raises their hand or their influence to harm God's people will ever get away with it. And that's something that we need to remember in today's day and age. That wars are going on and ungodly leaders are in place and we start to get to that spot and we go, you know, God, what are you doing? What, where are you? Why aren't you in control? But the reality is we need to realize that even in the most ungodly of times, God is still in control because when Peter and some of the other apostles wrote in their epistles to the church, they said, you need to honor the king. You need to pray for your leaders because God has set them. Romans 13 says, God has set them over you as ministers to keep order. And even when we look at them and say, but God, they're so ungodly. Why would you put these ungodly people over us? We must know that even if we don't understand, it's still under his control. He's still on the throne. He has a plan for it. He's using it for the greater good, for the glory, so that we won't trust in our leader, but we'll cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, you're the one that's mighty to save. You're the one that's going to take care of us through this time. And so we saw what happened to Herod, and we see that God did, in fact, have the final word. So my point is, is that this is kind of a story within a story. He gives us this story about Herod and what's going on with Peter and what's going on with these people in, that are from Tyre and Sidon. And then it goes back to the main storyline in chapter uh, 12, verse 25, where it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So meanwhile, here's Saul and Barnabas coming back up from Jerusalem, going back to the place from which God had sent them on this mission. Oftentimes we think of mission work, we think of only going out and spreading the gospel, but sometimes it means that God's going to send a couple of people as representatives to be a blessing. In this case, they took a, a bag of money, as it were, to the people to bless them, and then that doesn't mean they're supposed to stay there. They came back, and they brought John Mark with them, who is a relative of Barnabas. So in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teach, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we have these individuals. We know Barnabas and Saul from our previous studies, but then we also have a man by the name of Simeon who was called Niger. Many believe this was a black African man. Uh, it says there from Cyrene, which was in northern Africa, right on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. He had traveled up to Antioch. And many also infer that this is the same Simeon, Simon the Cyrene, that we get in Luke um, chapter 23, verse 26, when Jesus has been beaten, he's been scourged, 
he's bloody. They put his robe back on him and he's, they've strapped this big cross beam on the top of his shoulders and he's carrying it on the way to the cross outside of the city gates. Well, you can imagine that Jesus is so beaten up and bruised and marred and this, this cross beam he's carrying is already horrendous to carry. And so he's falling down and he's kind of slowing down progress of this um, crucifixion because the soldiers knew, hey, we got to get this guy dead and off the cross because Passover's this evening. And so they're kind of trying to make the process a little faster. And so they look to the crowd, those that are along the road there as he's being taken to be crucified and they're looking for someone to carry this cross beam for him. So they find this huge black dude, Simon the Cyrene. He's this big gargantuan guy and he picks up and he carries it. And many even say, historians say that he was only there because his sons were there because they were following the Jewish faith. They were there for the time of Passover. But that's just kind of a devotional thought. So we have Simon the Cyrene. We have Lucius, excuse me, Simon from Cyrene, Lucius from Cyrene. We also have a man by the name of Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So you have a diverse group of guys here. That's the point. You have guys from northern Africa, basically Gentiles, and you have this Jewish man that was brought up in the nation of Israel, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Then Saul was the last guy. So you see there in that group, uh, you know, not all of these guys had lived a godly life their whole time. And one of them, I believe, is interesting, Menaean, he was actually kind of a, um, he was a man that grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod. I put a note in here and then I, uh, let's see. This is the same Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist and he had actually presided over one of Jesus' trials. And so he was a very ungodly man. He didn't deal well with anyone. And so we see that and we see that even this man that was raised, basically who perhaps he went to school with him, I don't know. I was just talking to a guy yesterday and we were talking about some of the people that we grew up with. Some people we still hang out with and some we don't because of the things that we associate their friendship with. I had a group of guys that I don't see at all anymore because basically the only thing that we had in common was partying and it's just not my deal anymore. God's done something different. And so um, we have Menaean who is actually, it looks like uh, either a prophet or a teacher in the church. So <clears throat> let's look at this, uh, these two offices though. There's a prophet, it says there in verse 1, and then there's teachers. Well, prophets have a couple of different uh, ministries, but in that day, the prophets weren't the people that would stay around. They were kind of itinerant. They would go from one place to another, kind of like an evangelist. And what they would do is they had two things that oftentimes prophets do. They would foretell. When we think of a prophet, we think of somebody in the Old Testament that would tell something that was getting ready to happen before it did happen. That's foretelling. Telling something as if you had been there when it happened, even though it hasn't taken place yet. There were many prophets in the Old Testament that would warn the nation of Israel, hey, if you continue to disobey God's word and his commandments, he's going to chastise you. He's going to punish you for your disobedience. And he would warn them. And of course, they would ignore the prophets. And then they would go on doing what they did anyway. And then basically it would be fulfilled. God would punish them. And then they would send prophets to those people and say, hey, if you will repent, if you'll turn back to the Lord, he'll bring you back into the land of Israel. And so they would, and then they would come back. And over and over again, you'd see this cycle. God would use these prophets 
as a mouthpiece. They would spend time with the Lord. God would give them a word and they would go share them. And God still has prophets in the church today. The second thing they would do is they would foretell the word of God. And many times that's just all I'm doing up here is I'm studying the word, I prepare it, and then I come and I teach it. And many times it'll meet you in a situation, hopefully, that God's been working on you already. It's not because I'm reading your email or because I'm listening on the party line, although we don't have those anymore. It's not because I'm listening to rumors about you. It's just the Lord, by His Spirit, uses His Word to teach His people, and it's just the way that He works. It seems like sometimes people know what's going on in our lives, and it has nothing to do with that. It's just that God is the one that unifies all of us, and sometimes He uses you and I to speak into each other's lives. And that happens when I have conversations with you all. Many times God will teach me something that I have not yet taken a hold of and grasped. And so then there's the, 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 the teachers, and those are those that, that are planted in a church, perhaps men that are prepared and, and they're pastors and they have been called to a certain place to stay and to be those who teach the word of God faithfully and build up those that are called to be in that area so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry in their community. And that's what many of these men were doing. It doesn't say which ones did what, but that's kind of those two different gifts that people gives God or that God gives people that are in the church. So verse two says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. So let me ask you, you know, when you read this passage, what do you think of when it says that they ministered to the Lord? Many times we think that when we minister to the Lord, it's by serving or doing something outwardly to bless someone else. But the word there, ministering to the Lord, actually means that we do a service to Him. Now, does He need us to do things for Him necessarily? No, but He calls us to be with Him. And what I mean by that is, uh, unfortunately, what happens oftentimes when, uh, when, when church leaders get together, they schedule events, and they, uh, they discuss doctrine, and they plan church meetings, and they do all these external practical things which have to happen. But one of the things that I think oftentimes doesn't happen is that when church leaders get together, they need to minister to the Lord just like we do in our personal times with Him, one of the highest callings that we have with Christians is to be in the presence of God when no one else is around, just one-on-one, and spend time with our Father. Unfortunately, they were doing something that doesn't happen as much as it should amongst those who serve in the church. They were ministering to the Lord, not for the Lord, but to the Lord. And how were they ministering to the Lord? What does that mean? Well, the word ministering actually means, it's the same word in the Old Testament, that when the priests would go into the temple, they would make sacrifices of goats and bulls. They would do the different things that the law called them to do, and then they would give that sacrifice. They would lay it on the altar, and it would be consumed by the fire. Now, does God need meat to eat? No. Does he need 
uh, us to be starving to death by giving up our animals? No, but what that was a picture of is them offering what would give them life, their own food, their own, you know, the first fruits of their crops or the first fruits of the, the first animal born. They would give it up to the Lord and they would say, Lord, we need you, your presence in our lives, more than we need this animal to provide for our food. And so as they made that offer, it was pleasing to the Lord because it was saying basically, Lord, I only got two animals, but I'm giving you one, many of them, because I trust that whatever I give you, you're going to supply all that I need. Now, we don't give sacrifices of animals anymore. Our praise is what we sacrifice, the, the praises of our lips. And let me tell you, in the Old Testament, I guarantee there were many times when they were offering their animals or the first fruits of their harvest, they didn't want to. They didn't feel like it. But what they were doing is they were making God their priority and giving them Him the first of what they had to sustain themselves, saying, Lord, you're more important to me than what you've given me. I'm not going to worship the gift, but the giver of all good gifts. And so sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but I come to church, even though I'm up here, or sometimes when other people are leading, even though I don't feel like worshiping, I worship anyway, not because God wants me to give out of compulsion, but because he deserves the praise. He's the one that gives me the breath in my lungs. And so when I worship, it's not necessarily because I feel like it all the time, because there are days when I don't, but it's because he deserves it. Does that make sense? And so when they're ministering to the Lord here, they've chosen to take time and say, we're going to put aside our agenda. We're just going to spend time with you, Lord. And as they do that, they're going to be blessed because God's going to not only give them something to do, that's not what it is, but he's going to give them a word from himself that's going to change what they're going to do for the next couple of years. We're going to see Saul and Barnabas sent out from Antioch leaving what they had been doing for the last couple of years and going to do something completely different. They're going to receive a new assignment. No longer are they assigned to the church at Antioch. God's going to say, hey, you guys can go now. You're freed from this. I'm going to send you somewhere else. And I don't know about you guys, but oftentimes God changes my plans. And my five-year plan had nothing to do with what God tells me to go do. And it changes everything. Kelly and I were just talking about this a few weeks ago because we celebrated our anniversary and we start to think about what God has done since we got married and even before that. And I can guarantee you that when we got married and we said our vows and we stood before one another, we weren't thinking within five years we're going to be completely moving. I'm going to have a new job. We're going to have a baby. We're going to go to India together. None of that stuff was on our plate. We were just going to get married and do as all the fairy tales say live happily ever after, whatever that means. What is happily ever after? Well, it's, it's the next chapter. If it was true to life, it wouldn't just say, and they lived happily ever after. It would say, and then they did this, and then they did this, and they, it would just go on and on and on until the day that you, we breathe our last breath. Happily ever after is what happens while we're doing what God calls us to. And for Saul and Barnabas, I don't know that when they got saved, they thought, you know what, in about 15 years, God's probably going to send us to all the way to as far as Rome. Rome was like the other end of the world for them. Even though it was the same kingdom, it was pretty far away. It was like going to the other side of the earth. They didn't have airplanes where you could do it in 16 hours. They were going to take a boat, and they were going to walk, 
And they were going to, you know, whatever God was going to give them to travel with. And so it says, as they ministered to the Lord and they fasted, which is just a way for us to say, Lord, I'm more hungry for you than I am for my own daily bread right now. So they fasted. They said, Lord, you know, here we are. We're, we're ministering to you. And, and I think sometimes we think, you know, it's just repeating who he is and all those things. Once we get saved, it shouldn't stop us, once again, as Romans 12 says, offering our lives as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say, I want you to offer something dead. He says, I want you to give me back what I've given you. I've given you everlasting, eternal life. I've saved you. I've freed you up from sin and the power of sin. Now I want to do something with you. And that's our reasonable service. Romans chapter 12 actually says that this is our reasonable service before him. If you turn to the right from Acts to Romans chapter 12, this is what I believe that these men were doing. They'd been used by God, they'd been blessed by God, and they were at a point in their ministry where they still needed to, to confess to God, Lord, I need you. What do you want from me? And so in Romans chapter 12, after uh, Paul has basically described and explained uh, through the book of Romans, he has basically said, um, since God has done all of this for us, salvation, forgiveness, redemption, everlasting life that he's promised us, he says to them in Romans 12 verse 1, he says, I beseech you, which is just an old school word that means beg. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present yourself, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he says, you know, pr present yourselves as living sacrifices. And for those that Paul was writing to in the Roman culture and to the Jews, this would bring forth the picture that we talked about. The priests offering up these offerings to be burnt on the altar, he's saying, offer up your bodies, your lives, as a living sacrifice. You don't have to be completely consumed on the altar, but stay on it. But I think sometimes we say, Lord, you have my life, you've saved me, here you go, here I am. And then we have a tendency as living sacrifices to crawl off the altar and start claiming back our lives as if they're our own. And so Paul and Barnabas and these other leaders of the Antioch church they're just like you and I. They're fallible. They get worn out. And so in order to renew their strength, they're spending time as a group worshiping God, not for what he can give, but just because he's God. And as they do that, he then fills them up to go back out and serve. And for some of them, two of them, he gives them a different mission. Jesus modeled this as his disciples have to be with him to be sent by him. He called his disciples in Luke chapter 9 and he said, he called it, it says there in Luke chapter 9, he called his 12 disciples together. He gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. But before he ever did those things, they were called to be with him. We can't have authority from God to do what he's called us to do unless we first have a relationship with him through which he can pass on that authority. We also see the same uh, teaching there in 
Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to turn there. Because in Mark chapter 6, Jesus uses his disciples to feed 5,000 people. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it's not because his disciples had anything to give. It's because he had given them something to give to those 5,000 people. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it says, Then the apostles, they gathered Jesus, excuse me, gathered to Jesus. They told him all things that they had done, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. He said, hey, you've served, let's go get some rest. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They were serving so much, they were worn out, they weren't able to feed themselves. And so Jesus said, let's go to this deserted place, let's get some rest. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But, and this is what happened over and over again while Jesus was with the disciples, the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and they ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them, and they came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things, and when they came, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send these people away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, why don't you give them something to eat? Now remember, the context is that they're already worn out. Jesus brought them to this deserted place because they had nothing left to give. And so when these people followed them there, they never got any rest. They never got any food. The day's almost over. And they go, hey, why don't you send them away so we can get rest and so that they can go eat something. They're worn out too. And Jesus challenges them. He says, why don't you give them something to eat? And they're thinking, you already told us that we needed to get some rest because we got nothing left. So how are we going to give them something to eat? And he says there in verse 38, but he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So they go talking to the people in the crowd. Hey, does anybody have any food that we can kind of part out and share? And so when they come back, when they found out they had five loaves of bread and two fish, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, he gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate, and notice verse 42 says, they were filled. But here's another thing, verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of the leftovers, the fragments, and of the fish, and those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. So not only did he feed 5,000 men, but there was enough to gather together leftovers, which I love, some people don't like, and filled up 12 baskets. Now, that number's significant, right? Because how many, how many of the apostles were there? How many of the disciples were there? 12. 12 had served. So when Jesus called them to serve, when they had nothing, they gathered what little was in the crowd, they gave it to Jesus, he multiplied it, and not only did he feed the hungry crowd, but then he had enough left over to feed those who had served. 
And so he asked what they had, and then he gave them what they needed. And in the same way, as we minister to the Lord, to the Lord, he gives us what we need for those that we will encounter each day, but he also gives us enough so that we will have more than what we need to feed ourselves. But notice what happens as they offer themselves to the Lord here back in Acts. God gives them direction. Lost my page. He says, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then they fasted. Once again, they prayed very somberly. They wanted to know that this was the Lord's will. And they laid hands on them and they sent them away. When they fasted and prayed, they were praying, Lord, is this your will? When they laid hands on them, it was recognizing, hey, we all agree here. We're all going to remember this moment. We're laying hands and we're praying over this person because this is what God has done. And we want them to be able to look back when they doubt and remember, hey, this is when God sent me out. This is all of us recognizing this call on these two people's lives. And at that point, they sent them away. And it seems like to me, that once God gives them the word, he gives them direction, they don't sit a lot around a whole lot. They don't wait upon him. They don't continue, Lord, are you sure? They go. They respond in obedience like, like a soldier would respond to his, his commanding officer. They react. They go. But these men, we're going to see, they seem quite confident in their calling. But my question is, what, where do you think that their confidence comes from? Let's read chapter Uh, 13 verse 4 it says so being sent out by the holy spirit they went down to seleucia and from there they sailed to cyprus which is an island in the mediterranean and when they arrived in salamis they preached the word of god in the synagogues of the jews and they also had john as their assistant these men seem confident in their calling they they respond so quickly they they don't just kind of hang out but they they're off and running they dive in headlong not looking back. But I want to ask you the question, where, where do you think they get their confidence? What I see in today's passage is not so much of a confidence because of the calling, but instead I see a confidence because of who called them. They knew their Lord so much that when he called them to go, they were willing and they responded accordingly. These two men knew what Jesus had said. They knew his words. They knew his teaching so well. And he had actually told, they knew that this was his will because in Matthew, his last words before he ascended into heaven, it were in Matthew chapter 28. And I guarantee they could have quoted this verse. Matthew 28 verse 16 said, The eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And because Jesus knew that they doubted, he responds here in verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. He didn't just tell them, go and baptize people and make converts. He said, I want you to go out and I want you to teach them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. You've known me, now show them how to have a relationship with me. Based on what you know about me, teach others to do likewise. But oftentimes we think of that command, 
And we've all heard it a million times. If we've ever been in church, maybe some of you haven't heard this that many times, but that command, oftentimes, the rest of it kind of gets blurred because it's overwhelming if you think about the entire world and how Jesus has left us here and he sent us to be witnesses to the whole world. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have influence over the whole world. I don't have influence over my whole family. I have influence over a small amount of people. So how can I really make a a big impact based on that command he's given me? But let me encourage you, don't be bewildered about the command because every time God tells us to go and do something and he commands obedience in a certain area, he always couples that command with a promise. And what I mean by that is if you read at the end there, I think he really understood that some of his his disciples were a little overwhelmed by this command. We've got to reach the whole world? I haven't even been out of Jerusalem before, or Antioch, or wherever it might be. So he tells them, he says, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. But then he couples this with a promise. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this thing I've asked you to do, it's hard. And it's not only hard, but it's impossible for you to do without me. But don't worry, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. When you start doubting whether or not you're in the place where I want you to be, I'm going to be with you and you can pray. And when you start doubting whether or not I've called you to do this thing or that, you name it, I'm going to be with you. And if you're not supposed to be there, I'll correct you. I'll send you in a different direction. And I believe that these disciples that God has just sent out by this you know, word of knowledge from the Spirit to go to these different areas... They're confident because they know even if they screw up and they go in the completely wrong direction, that God is going to be with them because they're going to fail with Him by their side. He's even going to use that thing that they're failing in to bring glory to His name. I think of it this way. How many of you in here have learned to ride a bicycle? I mean, most of us at some point, whether we still do it or not, rode a bicycle. And someone taught us how to ride a bicycle. Now, I had training wheels on my bicycle. And my dad taught me to ride my bicycle. And the day he told me, okay, it's time to take the training wheels off, I'm going to be honest with you, I was terrified. I didn't want to fall. I didn't want to screw up. But what my dad said is, don't worry. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. And that gave me confidence in what he was calling me to do. So we took the things off and... We got out on the side street. We lived in a little suburb where there wasn't much traffic. I put on my helmet. No, I'd be lying. We didn't do helmets. But I got on my bike, and my dad did what dads do, or moms, whatever it did for you. He put his hand on the back of my seat, he put his hand on the handlebars, and he walked with me. And as I started to pedal, and I got a little overwhelmed by all the extra stuff and the thought of no training wheels, what happened is I got focused on the task. And then little by little, I got out there. And before you know it, Dad was not there with me anymore, was he? He was gone. He had let go. He he couldn't keep up anymore. So I'm pedaling and I'm confident because he said, you can do this and I'm going to be with you. But then he let go. And I don't notice. But I'm so overwhelmed by riding a bike that I'm not thinking about where's Dad at. I'm thinking I'm supposed to ride a bike. And as I ride, next thing you know, something's different. I start to panic a little bit. and I go, So I look for my confidence, right? And I look back there and dad's gone. And I'm like, so all in a moment, there's like millions of emotions going on. Oh my gosh, he left me. He said he wouldn't do that. But, but I'm doing it. Okay, I'm fine. 
And then I panic and I get confused and I crash, right? Because it happens. I scrape my knee. Dad shows back up. My point is that my confidence wasn't so much that he said I could do it, but he would be with me. But God's not like that. He doesn't want us to learn to be dependent. He's not like our parents. He can always be there. And some of you know that. Like I still have my parents, but they can't always be there, even though they're still alive. But God, in his infinite grace and love, desires relationship with you and I. So he gives us things. He commands us to do things that are impossible so that we can learn to be dependent upon him. So that's where these men got their confidence. God said, I'm going to be with you, even to the end of the age. When everything seems like it's at its worst, I'm going to be there. So let me ask you, where does your confidence come from? Where does your assurance, when you're in the middle of something impossible, where does it come from? Because if it's in something that can be shakable, that thing's going to let you down, and you're going to panic. You're not going to be able to get through it. But if it's in God who said he would be with you, and no matter what he gives you to do, You're always going to have assurance and peace. Don't get me wrong, you're going to be scared at times. But God will bring you through it. And maybe lately you've been realizing that you have a lot of fear. I took on this new job at the the tool place. And I can tell you that there are many days, Mondays especially, where I'm getting ready to go back to work and I'm going, man, are the... Because I make quotes and those quotes are good for 90 days. And sometimes the buyers don't come back and buy what I quoted to them until... Three weeks later. Well, in the meantime, I've slept since then, so you know who knows what I did that day. And whether you guys believe this or not, I'm sure you do. I screw up sometimes. And I get the email Monday morning every time. Hey, uh, you quoted the wrong tool, and this is going to cost the company X amount of dollars. And I'm like, oh, like, I don't want to lose my job. You know, There's grace there. But I go in with fear thinking, hey, what did I screw up last week? And the Lord's saying, don't worry about that. Let your confidence be in me. You didn't get this job because you were good at quoting tools. You even told the people that you'd never quoted tools. You knew nothing about tools, but that you could learn. I'm going to give you the ability to follow through on what I've given you to do. And so don't go on with false, false confidence and don't go on with no confidence. God wants us to have confidence in who he's made us. Do what these men did. Offer yourself daily to the Lord. Give your life to Him once again because we forget that we made that commitment. And then when you do that, He's going to show you, when you're faithful to be in His Word, He's going to show you, hey, there's areas that you're still not measuring up. Don't be surprised by that. Just confess to Him and say, Lord, cleanse me again. Make me new. And then ask Him what He wants you to do as an overflow of your relationship with Him. He's promised that He will be with you while you go and do it and let confidence in what He has promised encapsulate your willingness to go and be faithful. Because that's all our side is. Be willing. So let's pray. Father, thank You so much for uh, the the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. We're going to see them go through much more than just going to different areas and preaching, but we're going to see their very lives at stake. And it seems like sometimes You call us to do something. We go naively thinking that it's always going to be easy. Uh, But Lord, we know better. Uh, I can uh, just count on my hand, my one hand, just in a thought, how many times I've doubted whether or not I was called to do something. And then you always remind me of your faithfulness. And so Lord, for these here, I just pray that uh, we would learn to be more confident in you than in ourselves. Father, we want to see your glory 
and your testimony shine through us even though we're fallible, even though we screw up. And Lord, more than anything, I just want to thank you that your desire more than silver or gold or power was to have us as your children, to have a relationship with your creation. And so, Father, I pray that more than your hand, that we would seek your face, that we'd seek who you are and what you're making us. And Lord, as we do that, Lord, not only give us confidence, but also call us to do what you've made us to do. And Lord, remind us daily that we're yours. So Lord, we just love you, and we thank you for your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.